My name is Andrea Bumstead and I am a member at Restore Temecula. If you are new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help in any way, please visit our website at www.RestoreTemecula.com and click on contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android app store. With all of that said, we hope you enjoy the message. All right. I know, right? I dude. Not today. Not today. If I, if I can help it. If I can help it. All right. For those of you joining us outside, I can't see you, but I'm looking at the camera. just want to welcome you inside, guys. Welcome you. So thrilled to be together for Easter. I cannot tell you. My heart is just like full right now. So I guess I don't even need to preach. We can just go home. Uh, some of you are like, yes, please. Somebody dragged me here. I was really uncomfortable being in church. Uh, listen, you're not, you're not at church. Uh, the church biblically is the family of God. Uh, we believe that God put on flesh in the person of Jesus, came and did what none of us ever could, which was live the perfect life in our place, die the death that we deserve in our place. And, and, and his primary motivation to do that was to reconcile us to God. So therefore, we get to know him as father, as the best father, man, like the perfect father. And that has implications for us who know him as father. That means we get to relate to each other as brothers and sisters. So you're not at church. Church is not an event. It's not a building. It's not a business. That's not what it is. It's not something you attend. The church is gathered right now in a really cool, beautiful way in a middle school. The church can gather anywhere. The church is the family of God. So stoked that you're here from my family to yours. Welcome. If we haven't met yet, my name is Tom. I have the privilege of providing leadership to this church plant. We are a church plant still. We're still getting off the ground. I serve as the lead pastor on eldership with Heather and Herrick Berga. They're here. My wife, Ebony. Welcome, guys. Stoked to be together uh, in person. Before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Cindy Logue. Uh, this incredible woman spent like, like 10 hours at the DMV. I'm ring. Yeah, she spent like an ungodly amount of time waiting in line at the DMV this week. Uh, and here's why. We're, we're, this is a new space for us, and one of the things that's new for us is we have to deal with like a trailer and bringing gear now. We never really had to do that. We had storage on site at our previous location, and so we've had to figure out registration for the trailer to get it stored somewhere. It's been a bit of a nightmare, so she literally waited in line for like eight to ten hours at the DMV this week. Love you. Honor you. Uh, incredible. Okay. Enough with that. Today, you guys know why we're here. We are here to celebrate the most important act in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is an intense statement. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why we're here, okay? Now, there are several accounts in Scripture of this happening, but the one we're going to look at today is found in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that now. If you want to use your phone, that's totally fine. There's going to be words on the screen for you. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. So go ahead and go there now. 
And as you're navigating there, I'm going to be in the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. I typically preach out of that. So if you want to change your translation to that, I'd recommend it. Um, Before I jump into the scriptures, uh, I just want to pray for our time. So will you join me? Let's pray. Um, Holy Spirit, we really want you to point us to Jesus right now. I know that that's like your, your chief desire. You love to show people Jesus. You love to point us to Jesus and all of his goodness and all of his glory and all of his grace and his kindness and his patience and his love. That's our request for the morning. Um, and Father, I just ask for your help right now. Uh, I really want to honor these people. I really want to bless and serve. I don't want to get in the way of anything that you want to accomplish. Um, your word is sufficient. Your presence is fullness of joy. So I just pray that right now we'd be able to kind of open ourselves up spiritually. We're all spiritual beings as much as we're physical beings. Show us, teach us. We look to you now. We love you, God. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to jump in here to the passage, but I kind of want to bring you up to speed, okay? We're in Luke chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 1. But what's already taken place is Jesus has already been crucified, all right, you know about crucifixion. You live in the West. You've heard about it. It's Jesus gets nailed to a piece of wood, essentially. It's the most gruesome way to die. I'm not going to get into that, but that's already taken place, okay? His then lifeless body is then laid inside of a tomb, and there's this massive stone that they roll. They place it in front of the entrance of that tomb, and they even seal it. So it's about as secure as it could possibly be. You with me? I can't hear you. Great. Just so you know, my preaching is directly like, if you don't participate, it's going to be terrible. (laughs) Okay. So come on, be with me. Okay. So you get it. You know the story, right? The stone gets rolled in front of the entrance of the tomb. It's super secure. So you have the crucifixion that happens on a Friday. That's good Friday, right? I don't know why we call it good, but it's good Friday. I know why we call it good, but it's silly. So crucifixion on a Friday, the first day. And then the following day in Jewish culture, you have the Sabbath. That's Saturday. Okay. That's the day of rest. So, so the, typically they would like take, they would, they would take care of and embalm the, the, uh, a corpse right after it's, it dies. But that Saturday, it's day of rest. So nothing that gets paused. And then this is where we pick up here. Okay. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse one, read along with me. It says this on the first day of the week. Again, that's Sunday. That's the third day. Very early in the morning. They came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. Pause for a second. Who are they? Um, They are women, women disciples, women followers of Jesus. One of the things that you need to know about Jesus is he is passionate about all people. In this culture, women were looked down upon. They were were treated like worse than second class. Jesus loves women. Let's keep going. Not in that way. He's... He's, he's honorable. He's honorable, okay? But he loves women. So the they there, it's a group of women disciples, okay? And it says that they brought spices. Those spices are there to embalm the body, all right? You know what that means? Just preserve the corpse, the whole thing. Okay, let's keep going. Verse two. They, the women, found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, While they were perplexed about this, if you have a pen underlined perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. 
So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Okay, pause again. This is an incredible claim. I think, we, I think oftentimes uh, we tend to kind of let things fly over our heads sometimes. Like they're claiming a resurrection from the dead. Anybody ever seen resurrection from the dead? No hands. Okay. These two angels, they show up, they meet these women at the tomb where Jesus was buried and they say he has risen. That's an incredible statement. Can we agree? Cool. Great. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to consider for just a second what resurrection is. You all know what it is, but I want you to consider it, marinate on it for just a second. Okay. Death is probably the most common thing that there is. Everything living will someday die. It's, it's really common, right? It happens to everybody. Resurrection, life, then death, then life again. Like, I can't think of anything less common than that. I want you to think about this. Before I jump back in this, into this passage, I want us to start to really like consider some of the implications of resurrection, all right? If Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, it means that he has power and authority over death, okay? Um, do you guys know the difference between power and authority? All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break it down for you. Power is this. Power is like the ability or, or the strength or the might to, 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 to complete a given task, all right? So, so power, strength, might to do something, right? That's power, ability, essentially. Authority is the right to use that power. So consider parenting for a second, right? Everybody's got parents, all of us. We were born, we have parents. Every single parent has God-given authority. God-given authority over their children that other people do not. You with me? Let me hear you. Yes? Yeah? Cool. I want to make sure because if, if I'm not registering, I need to spend more time. Okay, so it's that authority that a parent has that gives them the right to develop their children, to discipline their children, to parent. You with me? Right? Okay. So whenever we see a breakdown in parenting, which we're, any parents in the room, there's no perfect parents. You just parent for a day and you realize like this is an impossible job. Uh, but there's no perfect parents. But whenever we see a breakdown in parenting, it does not occur ever because of a lack of authority. You have God-given authority to bless your children, to love your children, to develop your children, to discipline your children. So whenever there's a breakdown in parenting, it's not because of a lack of authority. It occurs because of a lack of power. It's when parents don't have the ability, the strength, the might to do the work of parenting. Okay, ask any parent of a newborn who's sleeping like two hours a night, they're exhausted, they don't lack authority, they lack power. Are you tracking with me? I want you to see the difference between authority and power here, okay? Parenting well, it requires both power and authority. So I want you to see power is the ability, the strength, and the might to complete a given task. Authority is the right to use that power. There are adults in this room that don't have the parental right to exercise some of the power that they may possess, you with me in this? You could be the best, you could be totally equipped, but you don't necessarily have the authority to operate that way in another child's life. 
cool. I want to make sure you guys get this. Now, again, consider the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It means there's nobody like him. How? He alone has both power and authority over the single greatest threat that any of us face. And that is what? Death. Power and authority over death. The resurrection means there's no higher power and there's no higher authority than him. That's an implication, if it's true. Let's keep going. Verse six. Again, this is the angels speaking to these ladies, okay? They say, he is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, and they're gonna quote Jesus. Jesus told them this before. It is necessary that the son of man, that's Jesus, be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And verse eight says, and they remembered Jesus's words. Pause again. So Jesus, apparently, according to these angels and the, and the rest of the, previously in the gospel of Luke, Jesus told his disciples what would happen. And the angels here are reminding these ladies of what Jesus told them, all right? When I was a kid, I loved basketball. That was like my life. It was what I did. I lived for it. I breathed for it. And when I wasn't playing in a game or in a tournament, one of the games that young boys play with basketball is called horse. Does everybody know the game of horse? If you don't know the game of horse, I'll break it down really, really quickly. Um, I'm assuming most everyone does, so, but I want to make sure you, you're tracking with me here. Horse is this game where you basically, like, if there's a hoop over here, I'm going to try to perform a shot in a difficult way, and my opponent then, if I make it, and I do and I accomplish it, my opponent then has to do the same thing, or they get basically like a strike. And instead of getting a strike, they, they get a letter in the word horse. So five letters. So you essentially get like five strikes, okay? Here's the thing. Did anybody grow up in the 80s and 90s and see those Michael Jordan and Larry Bird McDonald's commercials where they played horse like in the middle of the stadium? It was the greatest game of horse you've ever seen. Like when I play horse, I'm like one-footed hook shot three-pointer, you know? When they played horse, they were like standing at the top of the stadium and they're like throwing, they're like, okay, off, off the scoreboard, bounce on the floor, bank shot in and they do it and it happens because it's MJ and Larry Bird. Here's the thing about horse. You have to call your shot. You can't just like whatever, try something and whatever happens and say, oh, it bounced four times on the rim so you need to do that. You gotta call your shot in horse, right? Jesus, he told his disciples what would happen. He called his shot. And yet, even though he calls his shot, when these women, when they get to the empty tomb, it says they were perplexed. Perplexed means, it means confused. So the question is this. If he told them, if he, if he called his shot, why would they be confused with the empty tomb? How many of you know that there's a difference between hearing and listening? Yeah. So I have two daughters, Amelia and Vivian, uh, and they are incredible. I love them. They are, <laughs> they're really good at hearing. <laughs> they're, they're, they're learning to listen, okay? 
Uh, one of the things that's, that's come up recently in our household is I will walk through the house and I can, I can tell specifically what exact locations in my home that my girls have been in recently because there are every single light in the entire house is left on. And I'm like, okay, they were there and then they went here and then they went here. And I literally have gotten in the habit of like every day, this is not an exaggeration, okay? I'm not trying to be dramatic. Every day, girls, I, I need you to turn the lights off when you leave the room. If you leave the lights on, our electric bill goes up and that means mommy and daddy have to spend mo- more money on electricity and less money on other things. So, so please, turn off the lights when you leave the room, okay? I tell them every day and they do not every day. <laughs> and it reveals something, right? It reveals, they've heard my words. They've heard my words, but they haven't listened. They didn't allow my words to influence how they think or to influence how they act. Friends, hearing is different than listening. Because when a person listens, they open themselves up. They open themselves up to the potential to be influenced by what they hear. You ever have a conversation with someone when you're like, they hear me, but they're not listening at all. They're trying to figure out what they're going to say in response. They're not opening themselves up to be influenced by what they hear. It's sort of like if, if hearing is eating, listening is tasting. How many of you know you could sit down for a meal and you can plow through that plate so quick that you don't taste anything? You can hear without actually listening, without opening yourself up to the potential to be influenced. Friends, that's what happened with these disciples. They're so similar to you and me. I think sometimes we'd like to think of this as almost like a, we treat it like it's a myth. Not real places, not real time, not real like people. No, these are real people, man. This is what happened with their disciples. They heard Jesus call his shot, but they weren't listening. It didn't influence the way they thought or acted clearly, right? Listen, some of you in the room, even some of you kiddos, you've heard about Easter. Like you've heard about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But have you listened? Have you really listened? I want you to notice something else here quick. This angel, or these angels, reminds these women that Jesus said, it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day. Why was it necessary? One of the best things you could ever do when you read the Bible is ask questions. (laughs) Why does this say this? Why was it necessary? I want to give you a couple reasons. There's several reasons, but I don't have a lot of time. I want to give you a couple this morning, okay? The first reason is this. Why was it necessary? The first one is there's so many prophecies, okay? There are over 300 prophecies about the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior in the Old Testament. Over 300, okay? Here's what's wild. Jesus fulfills all of them. Uh, mathematics and astronomy professor Peter W. Stoner, fantastic name. Uh, he's made this, he did this pretty f- relatively famous study. Um, brilliant guy. He, he says this, quote, listen to this. 
the chances of just eight prophecies coming true by sheer chance is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's 17 zeros, like 10, 17 zeros, okay? He says, that would be the equivalent. You've heard stats like this before, I'm sure, if you've been around the church. That would be the equivalent to covering the whole state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep and then expecting a blindfolded man to walk across the state and on the very first try find the one coin you marked, end quote. Just to be clear, right, scientists all agree that there hasn't been more than 108 billion people ever. So like in the history of the world and humans existing, there's only been around 108 billion. That's it, okay? Billion has nine zeros. So the chances are far less in 10 to the 17th power. Are you tracking with this, 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 these numbers? I know this is like, it, my mind kind of spins, I have to read it. <laughs> so the probability is less than the amount of people that have ever existed, okay? He goes on further. He says this. He says, one man fulfilling 48 prophecies. Remember, there's over 300. One man fulfilling 48 prophecies is one in 10 to the 157th power. That's 157 zeros. And Jesus fulfills over 300 of them. The probability of one man fulfilling over 300 prophecies is practically impossible. Professor Stoner says this, quote, any man who rejects Christ as the son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world, end quote. It was necessary. It was necessary because there are over 300 recorded prophecies, many of them involving with him, Jesus, being betrayed into the hands of sinful men, being crucified and rising on the third day, like he told his disciples he would. I want to read you just one of these prophecies from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, I'm going to read you verses 3 through 6. Isaiah wrote this, the prophet. He, again, a messianic prophecy. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was, he was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet, he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, Iniquities is sin. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. Man, that sounds like current times. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. That was written 500 years before Jesus walked the earth. It was necessary for Jesus to be betrayed, crucified, and rise, firstly because of the prophecies that said he would be, all right? 
Next, one more thing for you. It is necessary. That shows up all throughout the gospel of Luke. Jesus says this all throughout the gospel of Luke. And each time it it indicates something. It indicates that Jesus is executing God's plan. Um, I don't have time to get into all these, but if you want to take notes and you don't trust me, chapter two, chapter four, chapter 19, Jesus does this in Luke, okay? And listen, he wasn't like ambiguous about why he came. Jesus was super clear about what he was up to on the earth. Uh, John chapter six, verse 38, Jesus says this, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus is clearly on a mission. He is on a mission every single minute of his life. You ever try to check out? You ever get so like overwhelmed with the realities of life and you're just like, I just want to like veg out and watch Netflix or catch a game or whatever. Jesus is on a mission, intentionality with every minute of his life, man. Executing the will of his father in heaven who sent him. Are you with me in this? People are impressed by Jesus' death. Absolutely. His resurrection, absolutely. His life is impressive, man. Every minute. Not only to fulfill every single prophecy, but to execute God's plan completely. Now, there is a classic illustration for this. I'm sure many of you have heard it. It is the, uh, you know, the illustration of like, you know, God's plan and how the resurrection is necessary. It's, it's the whole debt illustration. All right. It is probably played out in the church You've probably heard it in an Easter sermon before, but it is so good. And it gets me excited. It, it, like, it does something inside of me. I'm going to share it with you for those of you guys that haven't heard it, okay? It's used all the time, but it's so good. So I want you to think about sin for a second. And think of sin. Sin is basically like you disobey God by choosing you. You sin against, you sin against him and you sin against other people, right? We all do it. Every single person in this room, sinning against God, and sinning against others. It's, it's the like, not just doing the bad stuff. It's not doing the good stuff. You with me? Some of you guys are like, oh my God, he's talking about sin. I don't want to be here. <laughs> sin, we all do it. Let's just, elephant in the room, it's real, okay? The good, not doing the good stuff, doing the bad stuff. It's this idea of a lack of righteousness, rightness. None of us are perfectly righteous. Nobody in the room, okay? So I want you to think of your sin as debt, all right? Think of your sin as debt. And I want you to think of Jesus' life as sort of like writing a check. All right? Think of Jesus' life as writing a check. And it's a check for the amount owed for all the debt of your sin. And not just yours, but mine. Okay? And what, think of it this way. It's like if, if, if sin is a lack of righteousness, Jesus' life is providing the, the, the amount of righteousness that you're in debt of. Are you tracking with this illustration? Yeah, great. Now I want you to think of Jesus' death as like handing over the payment. All right, there's a a sin debt of the world, including me, including you. You have Jesus, his life is writing out the the, the number on the check. And then Jesus' death is like handing over the payment, okay? Here's the thing. That transaction, any any check, you hand someone a check, that transaction's not going to take place if you don't have enough money in the account to back it up. Anybody even been embarrassed enough to have a check balance? You're like, crap. I've been there. 
That transaction, it's not going to take place without enough money in the account, without the right kind of righteousness in the account, in the right amount of righteousness. And it's not like a 99% righteousness, it's a perfect righteousness. If it's not perfect, it's sin. It's tarnished. So I want you to think of your, I think I want you to think of sin as debt. I want you to think of Jesus' life as writing the check for the amount of that debt. I want you to think of Jesus' death as the payment. And I want you to think of the resurrection in this way. The resurrection then means that that check cleared. The check cleared, the transaction went through, the debt was actually paid. The resurrection means Jesus in your place. The idea of Christianity, Jesus in your place, man. Jesus in your place satisfied the actual debt, the real number. An amount of righteousness money you could never come up with. I could never come up with. Jesus in your place satisfied the debt once and for all. It's paid. As Jesus says on the cross, it's finished, done. That's why the Bible talks about how there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more condemnation. You're not punished for your sin. The debt's paid, it's done. It's like if you owe taxes or something and the IRS knocks on your door and you're like, it's already paid, man. They can't come collect more taxes from you. Now, God's not the tax man. That's a terrible illustration. Just track with me. But this idea is what makes Christianity different than any other religion, friends. Christianity is not a religion. Because at a basic level, religion says this. Religion says, here's what you need to do to be righteous. Here's what you need to do and not do to be righteous. That's exhausting and it's impossible. Anybody never made a mistake? Yeah, none of us, right? So it's done. It's done. You're not righteous. Neither am I. Religion says, here's what you need to do to be righteous, as though you could be. Christianity says, you aren't righteous. Truth, right? So therefore, because you're not, here's what Jesus did in your place to credit you the righteousness that you need to be reconciled to God and other people. Religion's what you do. Christianity is what Jesus did for you. You with me in this? I don't want anybody to leave this room, whether you, whether you never follow Jesus or whatever, like, I want you to just know. That's the difference. The debt illustration, it's a picture of the gospel. The gospel is this, that God, the perfect one, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, he created you. He created the universe with his words. I can't even get my kids to turn the lights off. (laughs) And yet when he speaks, planets get created. Galaxies are formed. You are made. The, the God of the universe. The scriptures say that he's from everlasting. Do you know what that means? That means he existed before the beginning. Let that just... He existed before the beginning? Let your mind... Like he's, he's holy. He's different. That's what it means. The gospel is that that God loves me. The one who chooses my way all the time, who rejects him by rejecting his ways, 
the scriptures talk about the kingdom of God. It's not just going to heaven. The kingdom of God is when he's king. It's when he rules and he reigns and he gets his way, even right now in your life and in my life. That's a really, really good thing. You want to know how I know? Because he made us. He knows how we should operate. He knows how we operate best. He knows more about human flourishing than anybody ever has. And he gives us directions and guidance as a, like a father does so that we would experience human flourishing, life the way it's supposed to be, the abundant life. That's what Jesus talks about. That's what he makes available to us. The gospel is that God loves me, the one who rejects him and, re- and, and sins against him and other people. It's scandalous. It's weighty. The gospel means good news. That that God put on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and he lived that perfectly righteous life that I never could. Maybe you could. I couldn't do it. He lived that in my place, in your place. And not only did he do that, but he died the death that I deserve, that you deserve for the ways that I reject him and I, re- and I reject you and I sin against you and I sin against God. Like, are you seeing this picture? Jesus lived the life, man. The check, he wrote the check perfectly and he died the death, he handed over the payment and the resurrection is proof that the debt is paid in full. Are you with me? Friends, this changed my life. It changed my life. Like probably, I don't know, 12-ish years ago. 12-ish years ago, I was in full-time vocational ministry when the light bulb went off for me. Like I believed that there was no higher power and no higher authority than Jesus. I believed that. I believed he was king. But that's not the gospel. When I began to see how Jesus used his power and authority, that wrecked me. Whew, cut me, man. How he used his power and authority to suffer and die in my place. Dude, when I received that love, not just like, okay, head not like when I received that love, it marked me. I've never been the same since. Everything changed. And listen, he planned it. Jesus said it was necessary because it was all part of God's plan. All right, let's keep going. I'm almost done, guys. Verse nine. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the 11. They is the women there. The 11, that's the apostles. Minus Judas, because he's a betrayer. And to the rest, verse 10, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things, but these words seemed like nonsense to them. They did not believe the women. Pause. Okay. Okay. We have to recap for just a second, right? So you have these ladies, they roll up on the tomb, it's empty. Jesus has risen just like he told his disciples he would do, right? He called his shot and yet the women are confused, okay? Angels show up, tell the women that Jesus has risen. So they then go back to tell the apostles and the apostles don't believe them. Are you starting to pick up on the theme yet? No one is really listening No one is really listening. 
The message isn't influencing the way they think or the way they act. It's nonsense to them. No one is opening themselves up to be influenced except for one person. Look back at, or look at uh, verse 12. Peter. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Love that. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. That's like the wrappings in Jesus' dead body. So he went away amazed at what had happened. Pause again. So, so Peter didn't just hear the woman's message like the rest. He listened. He listened. Their message had influenced Peter. So he runs to go investigate and he finds an empty tomb. And I love what happens next. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. We're going to finish up on verse 15. Verse 13. Now that same day, two of them, so two of the disciples, were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, I love that, so real. While they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. And that's our passage. So just so there's no confusion, Jesus is like, I'm going to show up. I'm here. Let's talk. Listen, it's one thing to disappear from a tomb. It's another thing to come hang out afterwards. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul writes about how Jesus appeared to over 500 people, kind of like this. He appeared to over 500 people after his resurrection. And he's like, he's like, hey, go talk with them. Most of them are still alive. Uh, Lee Strobel, he's like a Christian apologist who had a pretty cool encounter with God that changed his life. He said this, quote, I went to a psychologist friend and said, if 500 people claimed to see Jesus after he died, it was just a hallucination. He said, hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people have the same hallucination, it's, that's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. Friends, the Christian faith is not a blind faith. There is so much evidence that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was an actual historical event. And listen to me, if it's true, it means there is no higher power and no higher authority than Jesus Christ. And it means that God's plan for salvation actually worked the check cleared alright I'm going to close with this I'll call the band on up I'm almost done you guys doing okay you with me okay now it's so hard to write an Easter sermon guys because there's so much you try to fit into like 35 minutes and there's just like, it's impossible to talk about all the implications of the resurrection of Jesus in one Easter sermon, all right? Because the resurrection of Jesus, if it's true, it changes absolutely everything. Everything, okay? It impacts every single area of your life. Because there is no higher power and no higher authority than Jesus Christ, 
Okay, if that's the case, then you have to accept everything that he says. If he's the highest authority with the highest and most power, you have to accept everything that he says. The resurrection, it leaves zero room for lukewarmness. There's zero space for that. If you want to be a responsible human being who thinks critically. Either it's true or it's not. Uh, Tim Keller says this, I love it. Quote, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The resurrection, it leaves zero room for lukewarmness, friends. Either everything Jesus said was true or none of it matters. Like, we should just all go home. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, it means there is no higher power and no higher authority than Jesus Christ. But it also means something else. So this year, uh, tons of people got stimulus checks. I'm not going to comment on that politically. Um, better, I don't, I'm indifferent about it, honestly. But a bunch of people got stimulus checks. And I read this article recently that said that there were over, what is it, 10 million new brokerage accounts for 2020. Like in 2020. So brand new brokerage accounts. If you're not familiar with a brokerage account, it's basically um, an account where you can buy and sell and trade stocks. So 10 million brand new people that have really never probably never invested in the stock market before did, and they're using those stimulus checks to do it. And they talked about how the reason for that is twofold. It's because of the stimulus checks. So now people have some money. They're like, I want to save this. I want to be wise. I want to invest my money. Great. Awesome. Um, and then also because there's these like, uh, there's these newer mobile apps on your phone, like Robinhood and other ones where there's no fees associated with trading, buying, and selling stocks. You guys with me? So they said because of those two things, 10 million new brokerage accounts in 2020. That is way more than any prior calendar year, like ever. A friend of mine, I got to spend a few days with him, uh, uh, probably four or five, six months ago. And he was one of these people. He'd never, he'd never done anything with investing in the stock market before. And I'm spending time with him, a brand new investor, and he's learning about it and super excited about it and stuff. And he's like, the dude is looking at his phone all day. I mean, every 10 minutes, he's like checking his phone and checking his phone and checking his phone. And it was clear he started to develop this like bad habit of just constantly checking his phone. He couldn't help himself. Because that, that Robinhood app, it, the brokerage app, it gives you real-time feedback on the value of your portfolio, the value of your stocks. So you ever seen that like ticker thing that goes like this? That, it's a constant. <laughs> so minute by minute, it's giving a different readout. It got up, it went down, it went up, it went down. He's just constantly checking this thing to determine the value of his stocks. Listen. Being a pastor is such a privilege, guys. But I'll be straight with you, it is so hard. 
one of the things that makes it especially difficult is observing when people you love live differently than the way that they were created to live. That far too many people are living the way that my friend was living. And not that he was like checking his phone to check out the value of stocks, but he was doing that same thing with his own value in other ways too. Looking to things for his value, to determine his value. And I watch people do this all the time and it breaks my heart. They don't know their own value. So they look to all sorts of things to give them that up to the minute valuation of not of a stock, not of Tesla, but of themselves. Like I watch people, like they look to relationships to determine their value. And it doesn't just have to be like a romantic thing. Like I have the impressive group of friends or I don't have the impressive group of friends. I'm dating the person or married to the person that I want. I'm not dating or not married to the person that I want. And they, they look to their relationship and they watch their stock go up or down depending on their relationships. See it all the time. People do this with their resume where they, they, they literally, they look to their resume to determine their value. And then what they do, they watch their personal stock go up or down based on their accomplishments or based on their performance, either good or bad. And they're held captive up and down and up and down. This morning, I felt like, I felt like the spirit highlighted some of you, some of you moms like this keeps coming up, baby. This keeps coming up. Like, it's like the spirit highlighted some of you moms where you're like, that, that, that voice of just you not being enough. Struggling with the kiddos. It's hard. Looking to your performance as a mom or as a dad to determine your value as a person. Watch people look to their reputation. Watch their stock go up or down based on what other people think about them. That's why social media has such a stranglehold on culture. The list goes on. My friend, here's my question to you Easter morning. What do you look to to determine your value? You're looking at something, dude, and you're looking at it all day. hundred times a day. I can make fun of my buddy because he was looking at his Robin Hood app. What do you look to, friend? to determine your value. Do you know what the resurrection of Jesus from the dead means? It means the gospel's true. It means instead of looking to unworthy sources to determine your value, you can do what Peter does here in verse 12. He's not the hero of the story, but look what he does. He runs to the tomb. He sees that it's empty because the savior and the lover of his soul is risen. And you get to do the same thing. That's what Easter's about. My friend, Easter means you're infinitely valuable to God. Listen to me. Your value is determined by one source and one source alone. Your maker, Jesus Christ. 
the highest authority that there is says you were worth living for, you were worth dying for, and you were worth rising for. The resurrection means it's all true. It's not a concept. It's made its way into reality. Friend, there's no greater love than the love of God for you. That's why Christians get so fired up about Easter. Anybody within earshot of me right now can hear me. But are you listening? Are you listening? Forget about listening to me. Are you listening to him? His spirit is speaking to your heart right now. Spirit's highlighting some of you are moving too fast in your life. You need to slow down. Your life is, is you're hearing, but there's not a whole lot of listening. You're, you're eating, but there's not a whole lot of tasting. I feel, like the, I feel like the Lord really wants to bless you, but it's going to require you opening yourself up to receiving him in ways that maybe it's been a long time or maybe you never have. There's no condemnation in that. And Easter's proof. You're infinitely valuable to him. Nothing will change that. Nothing will change that. No one can change that. So Holy Spirit, that's my prayer for all of us. That we would be people who live at a sacred pace in our life. Who really taste and see your goodness. That's your invitation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that he's not like what people say he's like. He's not like what sinful people uh, exhibit him to be like. He's different. He's holy. But he loves sinners, man. He loves sinners. And he proved it. So Spirit, we want you. We open our hearts to you. We invite you to guide us right now. Mm, There's more. But we'll wait. We love you, Jesus. Minister to us as we praise you right now. Amen.